Let's hear God's word. Luke chapter 7. After he had finished saying all these things in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servants. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but just say the word, and let my servant be healed." For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers unto me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Even when those who had not had been sent returned to the house, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This ends the reading of God's word Praise be to the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're in a series that we've entitled um, Encounters with Jesus. Encounters with Jesus. And, um, you know, sometimes you look at, you you do like kind of a a puzzle with your kids where they have the the kind of the game that goes, what doesn't fit here? Um, And it'll be like, you know, three different kind of bears, and then suddenly a snake. And it's like, oh, the snake is not what fits. Right? Or, you know, or like three vegetables and a fruit. It's like, oh, the fruit doesn't fit. Well, this sermon and this account of Jesus engaging with the centurion, that is the thing that doesn't fit. This is the redheaded stepchild of, of our sermon series, Encounters with Jesus. And yes, why would I say that? Well, here's why. Because the centurion never actually meets Jesus. He doesn't encounter him. And yet, this centurion, who never sees Jesus face to face, at least in this account, in Luke chapter 7, still experiences the healing and saving power of Jesus. And I want to pause in in, in a way in this series and and say this. That as we have been looking at these various encounters people have with Jesus and they come face to face with him and they experience his power and his love and his affection and how he engages with them, one of the things that we face as people who've lived 2,000 years since Jesus walked the earth is this, how do I encounter Jesus? I don't get to see him face to face. And in this way, actually, you and I, the centurion, is most like our, has most an, an encounter with Jesus that is most like our experience, in which he experiences the saving power of Jesus. But who, who is the centurion? First, he's a Gentile. That's the majority of you, other than maybe four or five of you uh, in this room. Only a few of you have any kind of connection to uh, ethnic Jewishness. The vast majority of you are just good old pagan Gentiles, all right? And that's who this man is. All right, so he's a Gentile. But second, he never sees Jesus. He never actually encounters Jesus. He hears about him, but he never sees him face to face. He's never touched by him, and yet he trusts him. And so people still encounter today the healing power of Jesus. But the question is why? Why is it that you and I, 
who lived 2,000 years after Jesus walked the earth, who will never see him, who will never touch him during this life, why is it that we can still encounter Jesus? And why do people still come in contact with his saving work? I'm going to give you three reasons from this text this morning. Three reasons. First is because we still feel our need for Jesus. 2,000 years later, later, we still feel our need for Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, verse 2, the passage begins this way. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. The Roman centurion goes looking for Jesus when? After a great victory in battle? After a great harvest in one of the fields that he owns? After the healthy birth of one of his children? No, he goes looking for Jesus because something in his world has occurred that he cannot resolve and he cannot fix. His servant is sick. This is most likely a valued servant, the kind of person who would have gone in with him everywhere, who would have been his right-hand man, someone who would have gone into battle with him, his sword bearer, so to speak. Some of this is a treasured person in his life, and this servant is sick, and he's been able to do nothing to keep the... the the, the journey towards death from ceasing, he can't do anything to change the problem. And the, look, the desire to see God, the desire to look for God, often, maybe most often occurs in this world when we come face to face with the reality that we are creatures, that we are frail, that we are weak and small, and that we cannot live in this world without some kind of God, without some kind of intervention from him. But we, you know what, we, we don't come to that position easily. Our natural state is not to say, I'm needy, and therefore we run to God. The default of the human heart is to say, I can do life without God. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. We believe that we actually can do life better without God. And so we engineer our, wife, our life. The whole way in which we shape our life is so that we don't have to feel our need of him. This is why it's actually a miracle that anybody in America believes at all. Because we are taught from the earliest age to shape and fashion our life in such a way that we don't feel need, that we don't feel discomfort. And we look at our lives, if you look at just simply at our communities, we have gated communities and we stick close to what is it comfortable. We have our exquisite health care and our retirement accounts. We're bracketed by two oceans, so we don't have to really deal with too many of those problems around the world. We have life insurance and disability insurance, and we have health insurance, and we have car insurance, and we have homeowner's insurance, and we have pet insurance. Also, we don't have to feel the pain of loss. We've got comfort and care and security and safety. Where in our culture are you going to be forced to say, I have nothing but Jesus? But you know what, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing. That God isn't determined by our Western culture, his work. He is able to break through that even the rich Americans, yes, even the poorest among us are the rich in this world. That even rich Americans, like a camel going to the eye of a needle, the miracle can happen in us too. That God, he, but what he must do often for us is he must come reveal to us, break into our lives to reveal our neediness. And that is often very, very painful. But this is part of God's goodness to us. 
That he says, you have fashioned your life to be comfortable and to live without me, and therefore I must dismantle some things in your life so that you must come to see that you need me. Most of the time we are unwilling to awaken to our deep neediness without trauma and without sorrow and being brought to a place of crying out. It is not until he removes the layers of our security blankets from us that we come to a place of utter need of him. And so it happens when your child gets leukemia and your whole world gets shattered. And what do you suddenly find yourself doing? Crying out to God. That your world, you, you fashioned your world in such a wonderful and perfect way and your spouse comes to you and says, I'm leaving the marriage. And you sputter the words, but, but you said till death do us part. And they say, I'm leaving anyways. I'm sorry. God in his goodness is willing to do that. To stop us in our tracks, to strip away our security blankets so that we will feel neediness. And it is neediness that draws us to him. By the way, this is an aside to some degree on this. Parents, this should shape your parenting. You don't have to be helicopter parents. You know, one of the studies that they're showing, Jonathan Haidt talks about this. Jonathan Haidt is a New York, uh, New York University uh, social psychologist that one of the most critical reasons why our kids are having so much anxiety and depression moving into their teen years is because what they, they said, what they, the studies show is that our children no longer develop resilience in their early years. In which, in other words, that they have a life that is so wonderfully and perfectly fashioned for them with trophies everywhere and attaboys at all moments of their life that they never experience pain in a way in which they can then experience security and love. And therefore, for Christian parents, you know what this also means? They never feel their need for Jesus. For Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that you should go and abuse your children just so they can go through some traumas. You know, we're, this is not masochistic, but we are saying that we go, Lord, sometimes that might mean that we take a little bit less of a paranoid view in the way we parent our children. That we go, Lord, I'm going to send them into this place, and it could be really hard, and they may cry, but you know what that might do? It might create space for me to go, you know what's better than, than getting invited to that party? Is the fact that Jesus, Jesus wants you in his house. His house. I grew up in, I think from the outside looking in, in incredibly idyllic scenarios. My sister now goes to church here, so she has a completely different childhood, so that's fine. Right? Every kid has a different set of parents. I, my world was great. I felt no need for Jesus until early into my teen years, in which God began to break in because I started to feel what? Need. Need. I was a homeschool kid who was completely sheltered. And yet God broke through. So yes, homeschool parents, God can even break through not just your wealth, but your schooling. And the same thing can be true for your public school parents. That God can break through and work and move in the midst of the difficulties that your children face. Jesus is better, and he's always inviting us into the blessing of experiencing our neediness of him. It's his mercy to reveal to us our need. So that's the first thing the centurion experiences. Okay, people who experience need in this world... But why is it that centurion necessarily looks to Jesus to fill that need? He goes, okay, I'm needy. I can't fix my servant. I got to find something who can help me here, who can fix this guy, who can make life right. Why does he go to Jesus? Why? Because someone told him about Jesus. Second reason why we still can encounter Jesus. 
because of the testimonies about Jesus that are contemporary today. Verse 3, what's it say? It says he's got a servant who's sick, and when he heard about Jesus, he sent servants to go find him. He sought after Jesus in his need because he had heard about Jesus. We continue to encounter Jesus even today, even when we don't see him physically in front of us to touch us and to speak to us because we can still see him working in the lives of other people. How do you know that there is wind? Because you see the effects of the wind blowing. How do you know that Jesus is real? Because you see the effects of Jesus in the lives of other people. This is called what we call in modern parlance testimony. That when people give up and they share a part of their story in which they go, I encountered Jesus this way and he has done this for me. And we show and reveal what it is that Jesus has done. So let me just give you one. Let me give you one. This is from a girl who's involved. I'm going to give you actually a couple of illustrations from a college ministry I was part of. This is about a girl named Sammy. There's nothing exciting about this testimony. So, you know, no need to hold on tight. This is rather boring. Here's... But I, I chose that for a reason. T- Samuel was, Sammy was a typical college freshman. She had looked forward to college, but she was nervous about school. She was excited. But she had no thoughts of God. She was just trying to figure out how to do life in college, like most of us are, right? You show up to college and you go, I'm scared to death. How do I show that I'm not scared to death? And, she, but, and she's there in her dorm, and she meets two girls who live across her, the hall from her in her dorm, and they introduce themselves. And then they, they began hanging out with Sammy for a bit. The next day, after they met her, they asked her to breakfast, and they began to bond. And then more and more, Sammy began to hang out with these two girls. She came to find out these two girls were believers in Jesus. They were Christians. And she didn't have anything against Christianity or Christians. She'd only been to church maybe once or twice in her life. She just, Sammy just wanted life to work. It wasn't that she thought anything negative about God or about Christians, but she also didn't think anything positive either. But over time, she began to hang out with these two girls more and more and more, and they developed a relationship. And then they, they invited her to a Bible study, and she started going to the Bible study, and they began having conversations about Jesus. And they shared with them about their lives, and, and they talked about various things from life and how Jesus has to do with that. And then one night, in the midst of this conversation, one person told her about how Jesus had died for her on a cross and had been risen from the dead so that she may have life and life eternal. And she said, for some reason, that did it for me. That there was something about Jesus and hearing about him that I wanted to follow him. The simple knowledge that Jesus had cared for me enough to die for me and my sins and that he was offering me grace and the opportunity to be in relationship with him, to provide protection for me. And life is now is not simply a life to be survived or muddled through, but life is now joy and vitality because I have Jesus. Why does she have Jesus? Because two people came and told her about Jesus. Romans 10, chapter 14 and 17, it says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And guess what, brothers and sisters? You have such a story. You have a testimony. It may be as simple as Sammy's. You have a story where even from this week, that your life, such as it was this week, had moments when you cried out to God in your need and you sensed his provision with care and confection. When the truth of the gospel became louder to you than the temptations and the difficulties of this world, and you know what? Someone else needs to hear that story. 
They need to hear about how God provided for you when you were in the midst of a parenting situation in which you were up to your eyeballs in frustration and you had no idea what to do. They need to hear about how the Lord provided for you in the midst of a financial difficulty and how he came near to you. Your testimony, your story, the body of Christ is telling to this world the perpetually contemporary story of Jesus. It is always contemporary. Yes, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, but he's still living and working through us so that, such that people can encounter Jesus through you, through you. You know, when, you know whenever uh, Paul, Paul, this brilliant intellectual and philosophical mind, this theologian, but you know the ways, the, the, the specifics of how he shares the gospel that we see in Acts, what he always does, the core of it, is he tells the story of how he was saved. Three times Paul shares the gospel in Acts, and every single one of them involves simply this, here's how, here's how Jesus invaded my life. Grand philosopher and theologian simply saying, this is how I encountered Jesus, and people came to know Jesus through him. The gospel comes with imperatives, and it comes with indicatives and statements of information, but the encounter of Jesus comes as people experience him through the stories of others. But this also means this. Not only are you, do you have a story that you can express to other people, and that's how they encounter Jesus, but you know what? You need to hear the story as well. You see, this is not simply for those who have, don't know Jesus at all and have to encounter him for the first time. We also need to hear stories when we have actually walked with Jesus for decades upon decades upon decades, and yet we are weary and tired and worn. And so we need to walk into a, a living room with children's toys scattered around the place and, and, and some, a snack on our plate, and we need to sit in a circle, and we need to hear someone from that week say, this is how I experienced the Lord this week. You know what we call that? That's testifying in the midst of community. In which you begin to hear from other people, this is how I encountered Jesus. And experience the fresh wind of Jesus blowing into your life. How do you encounter Jesus when he hasn't been here for 2,000 years? Through the stories, through the wind that he's blowing through your life and through the life of others. But lastly, what is it that they hear about Jesus that makes them want to follow him? I mean, right? He feels a need, as we all do at some point in our life. We feel some sort of need. And then he hears about Jesus as the one who can meet that need. But what is it specifically that he hears about Jesus? That he seems to know about Jesus. That draws him to come to Jesus, asking for Jesus' saving power. Well, there's two things that I think we can see that the centurion has some sense of understanding about Jesus. This is in verses 6 through 8. He sends a message through a second group of messengers, of friends of his. And they bring this message to Jesus, and so these are, these are his words. But what he says in verses 6 through 8 reveals two understandings that he has about Jesus and the character of Jesus. And it's this. First, is he comes to understand, in a sense, the grace of Jesus. He seems to understand something of the grace of Jesus. Now, does he know that Jesus is going to go to the cross for him? Does he know that Jesus is going to do all these things? No. But we see it in the way he pursues Jesus. The writer here, the gospel writer, very specifically and very clearly is trying to create a contrast between two delegations of people that come to Jesus from the centurion in verses 4 and verses 6. In verse 4, there's the first delegation. The centurion, his, his servant is sick. He wants Jesus to heal him. So what does he do? He, earn, he sends a delegation of Jews. That's interesting. I'm a Gentile. You know what I need? 
I need some Jewish representatives who will go butter up to Jesus because he won't listen to any Gentile. So he sends Jews, and what do the Jews say as to why Jesus should help this man? And when they came to Jesus, they plead with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. And then they list off all the centurion's integrity and the things that he's done. He's rebuilt their synagogue, and he's been good to the people in Capernaum. What do they say? What is their worldview? They say, hey, Jesus, do good to this man because he's a good man. Classic. Jesus, do good for me because I merit it, because I I am worthy of of it. But this is contrasted by how the centurion speaks about himself. When the centurion comes, not via his friend, not to himself, but through his his second group of friends in verse 6, and through his own voice, what does the centurion say? His centurion sent friends in verse 6 saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come even under my roof. He's saying, I'm a Jew. I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. I'm not worthy. I'm unfit for Jesus to come near me. The centurion says, I'm not worthy of even being in the same room with you. I won't even come out to you and be face to face with you because I am lowly in comparison to you. Now, here's the kicker. Here's the kicker in this. Does the centurion say to his servants, I am not worthy, so don't do what I ask in healing my servant? If the centurion had said that, he would have had the exact same mindset as the Jewish leaders. They come to Jesus and they say, heal his servant because he is worthy. And the centurion would be coming and saying, I am unworthy, so don't heal my my servant. It's the same exact worldview. It's still based upon, one is saying, he merits it, so give him what he merits. And the other one, he would be saying, I don't merit it, so don't give me what I merit. I don't merit it. But what does he say? He actually comes and says, I am unworthy to come in your presence. And so will you do something even more amazing? Will you just stand out there and heal my servant from outside my house? In other words, I don't don't deserve your grace. I don't deserve your redemptive and healing work. But will you do it anyways? He understands something of the grace of Jesus. That Jesus comes and invades his life, not because he is worthy, but simply because Jesus comes and says, he says, Jesus, you're the worthy one. You're the one who can do this. So he asked not on his own merit, but on the merit of Jesus. And let me ask you this. Have you heard of the grace of Jesus? The reason why people still come and encounter Jesus 2,000 years after he lived on this earth is because of the amazing, amazing nature of his grace. That he, that he comes to us before we even ask, when we have no worth and no merit, and yet he, can, he comes to us and he heals us. And he heals those around us. Another story from college ministry that I was a part of, a guy who had been a part of our ministry, and he was like, he was Mr. College Ministry Do-It-All. This guy was, had energy and vitality. He led, uh, he led the, 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 the college ministry flag football team. He led Bible studies. He led people to the Lord. He led them. He was like the student leader of the ministry. Tons of energy, great strength, did lots of great things, shared his faith. A couple years after college, he gets diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And he tells his former college pastor or college minister the story of one night when he, in the midst of these treatments that he was going in for, that one night he went in for inpatient treatment for his, his lymphoma. And he's getting these just awful treatments. And he said at one point in the middle of the night, he gets up 
and he just feels awful, and he has to go to the bathroom, and so he does the whole, you know, th- that awful shuffle, right? He's got the IV bag, and he's growing off, and he's, he's got the, 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 the hospital gown with all the exposure, and he's, he gets to the bathroom door, and a wave of nausea just hits him in such a way that he just stumbles to the ground. And he, he said he's sitting there, he's laying there in the prone position, exposed on a cold floor, in utter weakness. And in that moment, the thought that went to his head was this. This is why I need grace. Because in this moment, I can't call out for help. I'm not doing anything for Jesus. I'm not witnessing to the nurses. I'm not reading anything theological. I can't do a squat. I can't do squat. I am sitting here throwing up on a cold hospital floor. I can do nothing for myself. And yet, and yet, He considers me worthy to be his child. That is the grace of God. That you would encounter a God who comes to you and says, this is the state of your life, that when you are simply in your sin, vomiting on the floor, you could do nothing for God. He said, I come, and I come to you to heal you and to make you, give you life. What do people hear about Jesus? They hear about the fact that he comes to heal our diseases even when we don't deserve it. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it says this, He, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Not by your merit you are healed. Not by your merit that your children are saved. By his wounds, you are healed. But this is not all that he heard about Jesus. It's heard that Jesus is kind and gracious and welcoming, even to those who don't deserve us. But what, what else did he have to hear know about Jesus? He had to know that Jesus had the power to heal. You know, you can experience a lot of grace from me. I know that might be somewhat amazing for some of you. That, but, like, I could be an incredibly gracious, compassionate, empathetic person. This week... I talked to somebody whose brother committed suicide in their house. I talked to somebody else whose marriage is falling apart. I talked to somebody else whose child has run away from the the Lord and from them. And I can be gracious and kind and gentle and give them my presence and I can pray with them, but you know what I can do to change their situation? Zero. Nada. It's the wonderful joy of my, it's the stupidest job in the world. (laughs) Hey, come meet with me. I can do nothing for you. (laughs) Except point to the one who does have the power to do something. In which he weds his grace and his power. The authority of Jesus is the second thing we see about his character. This is why people come running to him and still experience him. Because he's a gracious God but he's also a powerful God. What does he say, the centurion say in verse eight? For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, centurion is he's saying, I understand authority. He's not bragging. It's not a non sequitur about how mighty and powerful he is socially. The centurion is saying this, I simply, I understand how authority works. With authority comes incredible power such that all I have to do is say a word and things get done. And so he's saying to Jesus this. He says, Jesus, I know this, that for some reason you have the authority and you have the power such that you can simply stand outside of my house and if you simply give word, 
My boy will be healed. My man. I understand that power comes with the position of authority and that all I have to do is speak and it is done. And he's saying this back to back up his request to Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, would you have the grace to heal my servants? And he's also saying, I believe it because I know you also have the power to do it. And the crazy thing here is he's asking Jesus not to give a command. Hey, Jesus, will you, will you send some, you know, you know, there's a doctor in your midst, I think, right? Will you send the doctor to come help me? Jesus, will you, will you go and like, will you create a medicine that will heal my guy? No, he simply looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, would you give a command to a disease? In other words, we're talking about authority here. You know, authority is, you see it in organizational charts. You ever seen an organizational chart? There's the CEO, and then there's the vice presidents, and there's the middle managers, and then there's the, you know, the peons, right? And it goes like this. Here's what, here's what the centurion is saying to, G, to Jesus. In the organizational chart of this world, I don't know everything that you're over, but it appears that you're an authority over disease. That disease and death listens to you. It is under your power and under your authority. This is the organizational chart. The centurion, it says that he had heard about Jesus in verse 3. Now, we don't know exactly what he heard, but we do know this. This is happening in Capernaum. In the early part of Luke, the vast majority of Jesus' interactions in Luke are all happening in Capernaum. For example, two chapters, three chapters later in Luke chapter 4, I'm going to read it for you. Listen to some of this. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of the unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of them, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits. And they come out. And then what happens in verse 37? And the reports around him spread. What do you think the centurion had heard? Do you think the centurion could articulate that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and the Nicene Creed, and, the, you know, and the, the Apostles' Creed, and that he can know that Jesus is the Son of God? I mean, he probably can't define all those things, but here's what he can know. That guy appears to be in charge. And the demons and diseases listen to him, and this is what you'd experience when you come to Jesus, because he's still doing this today in which he, he is the God who spoke by a word all things into existence. And by his word, he heals diseases and brings the dead to life. And verses in chapter four, Jesus goes on to heal Peter's mom. And then, then it really starts to spill out. People from all over the place come to get healed by Jesus. In chapter five, he heals a leper and a paralytic. And so by this point in chapter six and seven, the centurions heard about the power of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. That this man is over disease and even over sin and over death. He can forgive sins. And this man only had a fraction of the story, didn't he? You and I, we can still encounter Jesus because we don't have just a fraction of the story. We have the wholeness of the story. And which we've heard about the fact that he calms the winds and the waves and the storm in Matthew 4. And we hear about the fact how he raised Lazarus from the dead. And then we hear about the fact that he rose from the dead after he was crucified. And he revealed himself that he is a God of power and authority, and that he ascended on high where he rules and reigns. Now he rules and reigns. 
And so how is it that people today who cannot see Jesus physically, how can people today, when he hasn't been here for 2,000 years, encounter Jesus? Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 says this, and Jesus came to him and said, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So I ask you this, whether you've ever encountered Jesus or that you long for further encounters with Jesus, can you still, can you still experience him today? And the answer of this, this passage is, is yes. And one of the ways in which we encourage our hearts in this is to not only hear it from the word, but also hear it from the lips of others. I'm going to give you another testimony. It's a testimony from Christianity Explored. And I chose this one specifically. We're going to end with this. Worship team's going to come back up. I'm, I'm done. Last time, next time you'll hear me is the benediction. There will be that sense of relief. The benediction, yes. All right. All right. But six-minute testimony from Christianity Explored. It's another simple testimony. Is this going to work, Ben? Oh, I got the thumbs up from the techno people. Good. Six minute, and again, I want you to hear what she says. All right, it is simple. She makes no promises. There's something simplistic about this, is why I chose it. But you see a woman who still, even today, gets to encounter Jesus. Go ahead. I grew up in Ukraine and have fond memories with my family and friends at school. I studied in Poland and uh, later we moved to the UK with my then boyfriend. Uh, on the surface my life looked good. Um, we built a successful business, uh, we had two children and we bought a house. But inside I didn't feel satisfied. I felt I never had enough. I was constantly worrying. I felt lonely, worthless, stressed and depressed. It was like I was existing without a real purpose. I felt that something had to change. I met Lisby, who was a mom that I met when my kids were starting school and we became friends quite quickly. Um, but at the end of the school year, she told me that her boys would be going to a different school, so she would no longer be around. Then one evening I got a message from her inviting us along to church, and I wanted to keep in contact with her, so I said yes. I've always believed in God, um, that he existed, but he seemed so far away. I remember church in Ukraine being very boring and scary for children. And I was really surprised when I went to Lisbeth's church for the first time. Um, it was in a school hall, which alone made it different um, to what I knew before. Uh, it was a bit weird, but I loved the whole thing, the people, the atmosphere and the music. And I was so impressed um, that day because they were praying for Ukraine in service. So um, we kept going alone for the next few weeks, um, me and the boys. And later that summer, a well-known actor who had struggled with mental health problems, um, he committed suicide. And um, I hadn't really told anyone that I had this sense of depression. So 
I told Lisby that I wasn't really fine and um, I needed to talk. And she asked if she could meet up to pray with me as, um, and as I told her about my life and um, heard her pray for me, I realized that I really needed this um, gut thing that she had. Um, so we started reading a Bible together and also we did the Christianity Sport course. I was fascinated. I wanted to know more and more and kept asking questions. Uh, I heard of Jesus before, but not like this. Um, for the first time I saw that he's here and he's alive and you can talk to him anytime and anywhere. One of the stories in the Bible that I kept reading again and again was when Jesus calmed the storm, um, which is recorded in Mark's Gospel. During the storm the disciples were really afraid and for me that would be the hardest thing to stay calm in the middle of a storm. Um, I would have been panicking like the disciples did but Jesus says there's no need to be afraid when he's in the boat because he's in control. And the more I've read the story the easier it became to stay calm in the storms of life. At the end of the Christianity Explored course, Lisby asked me if I believed that Jesus died for me and if I was ready to accept him into my life. I said yes and we said a little prayer thanking Jesus for dying for me, asking him to forgive me and to be in charge of my life. And Lisby said, well that's it, you've become a Christian. It was so simple, um, yet um, so life-changing. But it didn't fix anything straight away. It actually all went downhill. Um, my partner's drinking habit turned into alcoholism and I ended up having to choose between him and my children. So unfortunately we um, split up. And that was when the church became a lifeline. Uh, we were actually homeless, um, but we stayed with um, different friends from church for a few months at a time. And um, so far I've managed two years as a single parent of two. Homeless, broke and not knowing if I can even stay in this country that my boys call home. But I've never felt shaken because God has always been by my side. He has made me stronger and kinder, wiser, happier and calmer. Knowing that my Heavenly Father knows me, loves me and cares for me and is always there for me, it's um, changed everything that I thought I knew about myself and my life. I could talk for hours about big and little miracles that God has done for me so far and sometimes my friends ask me how do you stay so positive and happy and calm uh, when there's, um, there's horrible things going on but um, it's because I know that God is in control and um, it was one of my favorite parts of becoming Christian is giving up control before I had to be in charge of everything and everyone, but now I can give up control. It's not that I don't care anymore, 
but um, I just don't try to control things in the same way. I know that God is in control and that's what matters.